Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we are graced by the presence of wild food expert and author Robin Harford. Robin is a plant-based forager, ethnobotanical researcher, and wild food educator. He has published numerous foraging guidebooks and established his own wild food foraging school in 2008. His foraging courses were recently voted number one in the UK by BBC Countryfile. Robin is also the creator of Eat Weeds, which is listed in the Times Top 50 websites for food and drink. He has traveled extensively, documenting and recording the traditional and local uses of wild food plants in indigenous cultures, and that work has taken him to Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Europe, and the USA. Robin regularly appears on radio and occasionally on television. His work has been recommended in BBC, Good Food Magazine, Sainsbury's Magazine, as well as The Guardian, The Times, The Independent, The Daily Telegraph, among others. I'm excited to learn about wild food of the UK Isles and then ethnobotanical research around the world. Robin, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you for having me, mate. Good to be here. Well, it's truly an honor. You have an extensive body of work. And to start things off with someone who does have such an extensive body of work as yourself, I am curious in what drew you into relationship with wild plants, family influences, academic influences, maybe just a sequence of events that brought you out into the wild searching for wild food. Oh, wow. That's, that's a deep one. Okay. I grew up in the countryside. I went to school in the countryside. I live in Devon and half my family is from Devon. So Devon's a county in the southwest or a state in the southwest of England. Very, very beautiful, loads of multiple habitats. So my great aunts would take me out when they were going to get horse shit from the moor, Dartmoor, and we picked berries and stuff like that. And at school, I did what country kids do. So there was nothing... There was no tag to it in those days. You know, foraging as a tag is quite a, I mean, obviously anthropologically there's the word foraging, but in mainstream culture, the word foraging is really what country people did. We did it without having a tag for it. So because I grew up in the countryside, sweet chestnuts, sorrel, wild garlic, they were kind of around. I mean, I'd get nicked at school for smoking cigarettes in the woods and we try and cover up our the smell of the tobacco by eating wild garlic, which could lead me into an interesting story about how wild garlic really does look like our immaculatum, which is a plant called Lords and Ladies, and why you might not want to eat Lords and Ladies, <laughs> which, like I did at the age of 16. So that was the early kind of fomentation of being a kid in the countryside. I went into cities as I got older. I lost touch with the land. I mean, I still love nature, but not in the way that I was doing. It was the early days of the internet. I was involved in a publishing company that I'd created that was on privacy, counter surveillance, anti big brother, avoid the nation state, find freedom, personal liberty. Pretty, pretty, very fun stuff when I started it in my 20s. But it had consequences for me when 911 happened and the US government decided they'd try and chase me down and drag me to America. And that wow. never happened because I basically, as a privacy advocate, I had presented a profile to the world 
of being in America, because that was where my market was predominantly, the stress of that, of going head to head with an empire like the USA, was not bloody funny. And I lost my business overnight. And I really went into a bit of a mental health breakdown. Anyone who's been an activist, hardcore, will know what, what taking on the state in all its apparatus can be like when you suddenly they think you really are a threat. So I dropped out and I used the skills that I had learned from running a digital publishing company. I sold my first ebook, Not on Plants, back in 2000, and my whole publishing company was online. And I went into a nicer area, which was just coaching and teaching small business owners how they could utilize the internet as another platform to earn income and generate revenue. And even then, that was still quite hardcore. And my mental health deteriorated, and I just went. I just became a really good drug addict, an alcohol addict. And I thought, Mm. you know what, I've got enough money. I didn't make millions out of it, but I made enough money to basically drop out totally. So somewhere on, I think, my robinharford.com website, there is a timeline of my journey, and I, I list... 1984 to 2008, AWOL, absent without leave. And it was at that point that because the internet was so new, no one knew anything about it. I basically didn't have any hobbies at all other than making money and learning how to make money. That was it. One sad bastard. And I literally shut everything down. A couple of my sites that were teaching email marketing at the time, we were kind of on an autopilot. So I was getting trickle income. So, and I just had the dog and I'd get up really early in the morning and I'd go walking down the country lanes. I lived in the middle of the countryside and got to know that childhood joy, that experience that you get when you just don't want to be around horrible adults Mm. and you just want that freedom of escape. And the woods and the fields and the hedgerows totally plugged me back in in a really deep somatic way. And it took a long time for my addiction to fade away. But it's only one reason that I'm talking to you today, Darren, and that's because of plants and nature and reconnection. And it's a, it's a dark story, but it's a very beautiful story, and it's full of joy and hope. And so... In 2008, I had started eatweeds.co.uk. I was blogging, literally just journaling what I was finding and the recipes I was creating. I had no interest, no agenda, no game plan to be some kind of plant teacher. And there was a very beautiful American gentleman called Frank Cook, who some in the plant and foraging and ethnobotanical communities, predominantly in the state, will have heard of. He used to do double acts with Sandal Katz, who's the kind of the, the revivalist fermente, fermenter. Of course. Frank would take people out to forage plants and one day, and then Sandor would teach them how to prepare and process the plants on the next day. And so they were this, this double act that went on. And sadly, Frank died in 2009. I met Frank in 2008 in September. He took me and about three other people on a plant walk. And at the end of it, he had these piercing blue eyes. He was very beautiful, very tall, 
six half foot, I should think, dreads down to his to his backside, very deep baritone voice, just this vibe that was just floating my boat. I'm an old punk, so I was never a hippie. He was a hippie <laughs> in the best possible way. And he, his right. knowledge of plants was really deep. And he just turned to me and he said, Robin, a really serendipitous meeting. You need to be teaching plants. And when he went back to America, I had communications with him and had planned, set up a load of gigs for him to come and teach in 2009. But sadly, he died. And I just carried it on from that, really. I just taught. He taught on donations. I started for the first two years of teaching, I taught on the donation principle. So my my inspiration, my knowledge comes on of the elders. Frank Cook is why I'm here, as well as the plants, of course. Right. Well, it gets that old phrase, we stand on the shoulders of giants or we stand on the shoulders of titans. So I appreciate that backstory. And what a powerful story you have of entering this world or re-entering this world of wild plants through almost a death and rebirth cycle in your life. Now, is there a connection maybe between this educating people on wild plants and kind of their own food sovereignty out in nature, that connection with teaching people about their own political sovereignty and their own need to at best, not take everything that centralized authority says as gospel. You know, is there a connection there between that kind of dissident political tradition that I think is healthy and important, maybe never more so than now, uh, and this tradition of teaching people about food security and their own sovereignty out, out in nature? Yeah, there is. So this is the first time actually on any podcast I've actually told the story about your government trying to chase me down. Um, I, I mean, that's not surprising for the U.S. government at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we know lots of stories like this. I'm just one expression of it. Um, when I teach, I am very much, I know from my own plant journey that the ecosystem is the teacher. I'm not the teacher. I'm just a facilitator. I'm kind of, of a way shower. I don't really know what word to describe myself. I don't actually see myself as a teacher. I don't certainly don't see myself as an expert. I'm a I'm a human who's been deeply healed from a very damaged past by connecting back with my local ecosystem and specifically through the gateway of the plant kingdom. So when I teach, I teach in a very I'm not sure what's the word. I ask more questions of my students than than I give answers mm. because foraging is an aspect of re-empowerment i don't talk politics and and don't talk politics i don't talk spirit don't talk god because i know from personal experience of teaching full time since 2008 i'm not just talking like the odd day here and there a month i'm talking full full on until most probably three or four years ago now three years ago that when people are introduced to the ecosystem and they're introduced to plants in a way where they they are able to start deeply sensing into their bodies, somatic, I suppose you would call it. I teach plant identification and getting to meet a plant. I call it the sensory method of plant identification. So botany is defined as the pattern method of plant identification. So botany is kind of square stems, opposite leaves, 
etc. How many stamens, how many petals? Sensory method is going beyond just the eyes. So, you know, wildflower key is one sense. It's eye-based. It's vision-based. So I take people, well, firstly, we have to slow them right down and have to get them out of the crazy head that all this, as much as I, you know, I'm a big advocate of tech, but, you know, it has a shadow side that we end up in our heads and yeah. we forget about our bodies. You know, anyone who's been on social media long enough or doing Zooming long enough, you know, when you turn it all off and actually just sit with yourself, don't read a book, don't turn on the telly, don't listen to music or the radio, even don't even have a conversation with you, just sit with self, chances are you're spaced out. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> so true, yeah. So the, for me, when I teach plants, it's about pulling them back into the body. So I explain this as a metaphor. So the, the brain is like going to the moon. We have all these heady facts and figures. The body is the earth, and it's about coming back to our bodies, coming back to the earth. And this is done through what I refer to as contemplative practices. So that involves slowing right down, becoming present and aware. Some would, you might want to use the word mindfulness, but it, that's not what I teach. I teach contemplative practices. Mindfulness is the closest thing most people will be able to associate with. And then when we've paid attention, as a botanist would, to the pattern of the plant and the habitat and the environment that it's around, then we go a little bit deeper. So this is where I say that I teach beyond botany. And so I then ask people to pick a little bit of the plant that we're looking at and really feel sensually in a way that you would with a lover. You know, when you're just going in really slow and you're just feeling the body, you're really sensing that expression of the texture of that leaf between your fingers. And it takes attention. It is attention practice. And then once you've got that, then we start asking people to crush and roll that plant. And by doing that, aromatics and oils are released. Now, we don't get this in the, in the wild flackies. They don't tell you what a plant smells like. And to be honest, everyone smells it differently. So they're pretty useless anyway at that point. So this, is, this feeds into the principle of what I define as bio-individualism. Okay. This is where we are unique expressions of life and we all have our own perception. But by using our sensory body, we smell. And if we're still enough, that point of crushing and smelling, things arise. They're flashes. They're really quick. So when someone says, how do I use this plant? You know what? I've written all these books on facts and figures. That's the historical stuff. That's really, really important. Cannot deny that's why I write them, because it's our heritage, you know, the past knowledge. But in the present moment, in the current time, if you want to know a dandelion, meet it through your senses, meet it through your eyes, meet it through the touch and the smell, really important. I started teaching this, God, 2008, 2009, I was developing this practice. And it's only recently that I found out that there's a tribe in Africa. So I stick my head into a lot of science papers. There's a tribe in Africa that has their language expression of smell is 70 times larger than their language expression of color now that's completely different you know in the west it's i know visual is the primary sense it's like well okay i'm open to that but let's not lock ourselves in that it is this is the fact because these dudes in africa are telling us something different so by smelling what comes up is images yeah 
I'll give you an example. I had a woman on my course two years ago, Polish, and we were working with yarrow. And I took them through this, this practice, and, and she was crushing the leaf of yarrow, and she smelt it. And she said, God, I see that with crushed potato, like mashed potato. And it was like, great, there you go. You didn't need Robin to tell you how to use it, did you? And she <laughs> sent me an email two days after the course, and she said, you know, that was really weird for me. Because I'm from Poland and we've got this big wild food tradition. And I looked it up in the old Polish books and yarrow, chopped yarrow leaf is used in mashed potato. So I thought, well, that's great. So then it begs the question, how does that happen? All right. So right. I like bringing everything down to terra firma. I would say, and I teach, from cradle to grave, we eat. Unless we're fasting, we eat. We have experienced huge varieties of food, sometimes only once. But every memory of our life is expressed in our body. And by sinking down and releasing, it's almost a catalyst. It most probably just triggered something from her unconscious. Yeah. If you speak to people who are more into the shamanic tradition, they would most probably say the plant spirit told that woman. Either way is actually not important. Shamanic or rational atheist worldview, they are just worldviews. They are just frameworks, right? They're not truth with a capital T. Either way, we got a result. She got a result. So there's this interface when we forage and work with plants, which is why nature to me is the teacher. So if, if you want to ask me what, do you have a spiritual tradition, Robin? I don't because I'm borderline, borderline atheist. But if I had to be tagged and bagged, then yeah. it would be Taoism. It would be Zen. And I got clean in a mindfulness Buddhist community in Thailand. That's how I managed to also return. So, yeah, an interesting process of how the human is, the language we use to express ourselves. I'm going, look, I mean, just take this phrase. I want to reconnect to nature. You've already excluded yourself. Right. I am going to reconnect to nature. Yeah, well, I hate to throw a cat amongst the pigeons here, but you are bloody nature. How can you <laughs> reconnect to it? How can you reconnect to something you're already a part of? So what I then paraphrase that with is that when people say that or make that claim, they want to have more connection with the natural world, it's an inside job. What they're actually saying <laughs> to me is they're trying to reconnect to themselves. And that comes through the sensory practices. Deeply profound. And I think you've elucidated so beautifully why so many people resonate with this act of going out into nature, spending time in nature, connecting with the organisms there. You know, in my case, it was through the avenue of mushrooms. For you, it was wild plants. And this idea where you're interacting with these organisms and taking the time to really appreciate them. And I love that sensory idea because, again, when it comes to mushroom foraging, that's such a big part of it. It comes to smelling and feeling. So, of course, it would be much the same with plants. But what you're talking about is how this practice, without having to explicitly state, oh, we're going to tap into mindfulness. Oh, we're going to tap into a sense of spirituality. I mean, that's all rolled up in just the physical act. And I think that's so powerful because so many people are wondering, how can I be more mindful? Or yeah, how can I reconnect with nature? Or how can I, they're trying to achieve some of these 
things we might associate with higher consciousness, spirituality, awareness, whatever you want to call it. And it's so powerful to think that just a physical practice, which so much of this is somatic. I mean, so much of this experience on this earth, I think, is about the body. There's so much knowledge wrapped in there. And that just beautifully describes how taking this physical practice kind of taps you into all these different areas without needing the head to consciously think about and bring you there. You know, you might not think yourself into a deeper connection with nature. You might not think it, but the physical practice is what brings you there. That's an incredibly powerful perspective to put on this tradition. And I guess when you teach classes, is it something where you're more focused on just the nuts and bolts of identification and doing this sensory practice? Do you get into some of these other realms or do people naturally go there when, you know, you're wild foraging school and your classes? Is this something people kind of naturally start to explore once you've had time with them and exploring this kind of work? What I've found is that because I don't put any tags onto the experience, it's like, look, okay, we're going to do a practice. What do you get? So in my 20s, I trained to be a priest, all right? In the Catholic wow, adding tradition. more to this incredible story. You trained to be a priest. Okay. Yeah. So it was a it was very much a contempt the contemplative practices of the early Christian mystics. Hildegard of Bingham being a big one. Anyone knows who that is. I'm not a Christian anymore. I actually and I never finished the training because I had some freaky experiences that I couldn't put myself into a box like that. They were great experiences, mm. but I couldn't be in a box. And so What I do by teaching people that, it's so simple. You know, there's nothing complicated about this. It's what we do. And it's something I found when I have been with traditional cultures in Southeast Asia, et cetera, that they use this sensory practice. So I went to Burma five years ago, four years ago, five years ago. And I was in dialogue because Burma is a military dictatorship, right? So you want to see what real totalitarianism is, go there. Yeah, And the Karen, who are the, the kind of the militias, I suppose, Hill Tribe militias, indigenous people, or one of them, were fighting with guns against the military government. And I was asked if I could go into what are called the black zones, which are really heavy places. I mean, as a traveler, you, you wouldn't get in. So we were looking at getting the, the documentation and certification. And, and I got to a point where it was like, this is out my league, right? We right, need someone right. from Q. It needs a proper ethnobotanist, not someone who's just kind of geeking out on plants of all these cult- cultures around the world. But one thing I did learn from the Karen was that they very much use their sensory body when identifying plants. It's not just a visual thing. It's a full body expression and experience. So by giving people these practices, they come to their own conclusions. The way that I see it is that it, it's just data that comes in. Yeah, it's data streams, it's live streams. Information is coming in all the time to us. And most of the time we're we're oblivious to it. That's why people take psychedelics and things to kind of open themselves up a little bit. It's kind of like right. the closed, you know, I think Stephen Harrod Boone described it beautifully. Sensory gating, you know, normally the, the aperture of the camera is very small. And by doing contemplative practices like I teach or mindfulness or yoga or breathing or taking psychedelics, that aperture can open a little bit. Yeah, we don't want it to open too quick because we'll blow our brains out. 
<laughs> like people kind of screw up on the psychedelics. So it's a gentle opening of that aperture, which means we start perceiving more data. And the way that data to me comes in, I believe I have no evidence of this. I'm not a neuroscientist and I'm not going to make claims I am, is the data comes in through the body. The body shoots it up to our brain in our skull, not the brain in our heart and not the brain in our gut. So there's three brains, yeah, for perception yeah. and cognition, up into our head. And that translates it. So to me, the head is a translation box. But mm. in the Western culture, where it's very head-centric, it just thinks this is it. But we're missing all this other data that's coming in. And by doing these practices, over time, we get an understanding. We develop insight our own insight, not a grand cosmic scheme insight, I know the truth of everything, but our own, which is why the relationship between human and plant is so very unique and individual. Yes, we can say, oh, it's stinging nettle. But actually, my experience is that everyone has their own understanding and relationship with stinging nettle, just as we do with the human animal. You know, you look at a I teach a group of people in front of me, I say, look at each other. We are part of the collective called Homo sapiens, but every single one of you is totally unique. And therefore, you have different preferences, different flavors, different smell sense, different everything at the end of the day. And by developing deep relationship with the plant through the sensory practice, they develop their own framework to put that experience in. They either have an experience or they don't have an experience. So when I was training to be a priest, one of the things my bishop was really adamant about and the Buddhist said as well, is do not, Buddha said, do not believe what I say. Validate, validate, validate. Verify, verify, verify. So if you could do these practices enough, you will validate that something pretty odd's going on. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> yeah. But how you choose to frame that is entirely, I leave that entirely up to the students. It's not for me to project my own framework of how I navigate reality. It's up to everyone to come to their own understanding. And some people want to put it into elves and fairies and pixies and plant spirits. That's absolutely cool. Some people want to put it into an expression of pure rational, rational, oh, it's me tapping into maybe genetic memory or past memory of when I had maybe a similar food that reminds me of what I have in front of me and it triggers a response. Leave that interpretation open. The point is to have the experience because that's where the reconnection and that's where the deep feeling of being part of the ecosystem that's the work for me making pesto is just a bait to get you on the course we go deeper <laughs> than that it's not just wild food look at the word food yes we can do this we can pop it in our mouth but food is is quite a metaphysical word if you think about it we're fed on many levels a sunset a sunrise can feed us deeply nourish us really deeply so those are the aspects of nature and the ecosystem i try and elicit in people through these practices that's a very good point when we're talking about wild food in the context of robin's courses we're talking about nourishment on every level uh -huh. clearly and, and i've learned not to make blanket statements when it comes to wild food wild plants wild mushrooms whatever the case may be but do you think this practice is something we, a practice like this that you're seeing in your travels and other cultures, do you think this is something we need to reconnect with in the Western world to help achieve more balance both within ourselves and then outwardly with the world around us? Do you see this as something that is desperately wanting 
in the Western world. And when I say Western, you know, the Western European world of the US, Western Europe, that kind of thing. I have witnessed deep change in people. I've met people three, four years who came on a three-hour course, just a walk, like in a London park, who've just said their life path has gone on a completely different trajectory. Now, that's not me. That's them interfacing with the plant kingdom, yeah? Yeah. That's them. They took it, they had an experience, and it did something. It shifted. It made a change. These practices, when you take them, you know, I've said drug addict, really fucked up human being. I was really, really not good and I should be dead like I say these practices save lives we know the power of forest bathing on mental health and mental well-being they're very simple practices to me the mental health crisis with covid and the various lockdowns if you believe or don't believe it and practice or don't practice those irrespective the mental health crisis that's going on that really isn't spoken about at the moment that much in the media we get snippets but it's huge. My partner's a play therapist, and I can tell you, this is, this is massive. We're going to need this. We're going to need this. And what better way than introducing people to the ecosystem and wildness than through something they've done since they've been a baby, which is eat. And, and all that that brings, it brings community, it brings celebration, it brings just feeling groovy on a summer's day. It brings all the good stuff that makes being a human wonderful and doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, you've got to pay to come on my gigs. You don't have to. Most of my stuff's on my website anyway. You don't have to come on it. That's why it's so comprehensive. It's released. But to do this together, to heal our communities, just as we know, growing plants, growing plants, gathering plants, making medicines with plants together in community, intergenerational intercultural yeah it's it's a game changer it's it's culture changing and the culture needs changing i find some of myself in your story just a little bit you know i used to be in the realm of digital marketing and auto finance and you know this reconnection with nature changed so many unhealthy habits and even perspectives and states of mind that i was in in that world and i feel like this is something so desperately needed. And yeah, even if we aren't always thinking of the mental health crisis, I mean, we're now in a culture that has incredibly normalized conversation around depression, anxiety, because it's so rampant that it's the talk about it is everywhere now. So clearly, there are these huge psychological and spiritual issues we're beset by. And I see this as such an important piece to really holistically healing some of those issues rather than, you know, pharmacology and some of the other roads we go down that don't really seem to address the issue. This offers an actual answer that's so simple. It's so accessible. And it's really everyone's birthright as human beings living on this earth, this connection, intimate connection with nature you're talking about developing. I'm glad to hear you say that it, that you see it as something that's really key in shifting our culture in a positive way. And I think that's why, again, so many people resonate with it. I think that's why I'm able to have a podcast that just sprung up in the last few years and people want to hear about it, is there's this innate sense or subconscious sense that this is something we're lacking and people want to re-engage with. It leads me to a question that I don't know if you'll have a, a firm answer for or even want to get into. 
But do you think this kind of work that we're talking about can shift culture? Do you think that's one of the most effective forms of activism? In times of COVID, I know a lot more people are becoming aware about issues of mass control and issues of the many being controlled by the few, however that looks to you, whether you think that's through one political figure or a group of figures or just an economic system that trends in that direction. Do you see this as a more one of the most potent forms of activism that would inevitably redress a lot of these bigger issues that people are becoming cognizant of, even if it's not consciously opposing anything or trying to tear down anything? Do you think this interaction with nature is another avenue to still address what people are seeing as a, a huge collective issue when it comes to social control and things like that? That's a fascinating question. Um, and yes, I am going to answer it. I mentioned earlier that the kind of life philosophy that I have deep affinity to is Taoism. Mm. So in my underground privacy days, that was seeing a boulder and breaking it. There's yes. the enemy, break it. We're going to smash the hell out of it. That's like the black block anarchists on demos and stuff do. And that's yep. perfectly understandable. I used to be one of those when I was a teenager. We didn't call it black block back then, but I was a street fighting anarchist. But I'm now not at that part in my life. And the Taoists talk about water flowing around a boulder. And only through time does that boulder slowly wear down. When we're younger, we want it to happen now. When we're a bit more long in the tooth like an old git like me, ah, we'll see what happens. And right. it's a, there's a reason. You see, I've never really understood what's so special about what I teach. To me, it's just pretty common sense, really. It's, it's doing what we've done as humans since we came out of the swamp, if we came out of the swamp. <laughs> You know, I've taught Google, boo, hiss. I've taught, yep. I was brought over to India by one of India's wealthiest families, and I've taught an elite collection of extremely high net worth, which included one billionaire. Why? Why would this totally fucked up human from Devon who's got this history, what's he doing that is touching people at such a deep level that they want to know more, especially in those kinds of cultures, which are the kind of the power brokers. Right. And I remember seeing a film, Schindler's List. It's about the mm. concentration camps in Schindler. And at the very end of Schindler's List, he breaks down and he said, I didn't do enough. He saved 5,000 people's lives. And the film snaps to another scene of the existing survivors of the camps walking through a graveyard in Israel and a quote from the Talmud flashes up and it says, if you save one life, you save a generation. So I'm at a stage in my life where I don't need to change the world as in have a mass shift. But like I mentioned earlier, people come up to me years after they've done a three hour walk and say their life's gone off on this trajectory. That's changing lives. That changes culture. And because there's a groundswell and there's a movement of people learning how to make their own medicines, learning how to feed themselves without 
the mediator of a corporate entity to spoon feed them, which is what we all are. We have replaced quite a rough life. I mean, I'm under no illusion that you live in a jungle. It's bloody hard work and, and there's a lot of dangers there. So we replaced that by coming into cities and insulating ourselves and using the media of corporations and businesses to provide our the necessities for life. So yes, it's revolutionary. And I do again, I'm absolutely the ecosystem is is the teacher, is my teacher every day. And and it's not about pushing a political philosophy. It's how do the experiences of, of wonder and beauty and mystery and awe that come about when you're really present with plants and your your environment. What does that teach you? Too often we go into the ecosystem, put this stuff onto it. Oh, this is what it is. This is how it is. You know, our philosophies, our ideologies. Bollocks, reframe it the other way. Just shut up, human. Get out of your own way. Sit, shut up, be still and observe. You might learn something that way rather than thinking we know it. So, yeah, it's pretty anarchic, actually. It is, if I'm honest. You want me to? Yeah, it's teaching anarchy. <laughs> I do not see a central authority in the ecosystem. You know, we might have these all the lions, they're top of the blooming jungle. And it's like, are they really? Well, the microbes are showing us something at the moment. Who's top of the pit? Who's top of the totem pole? <laughs> yeah, we're projecting our hierarchies onto the system. Yeah. And I guess I was getting the heart of that concept, which is I, I do feel like when you show people this relationship they can have. And, and again, that's so important what you just said, to let them absorb the insights from nature instead of projecting our own perspectives out onto it. It inevitably makes people less likely to fall for the tricks of manipulation and control that I think a lot of us see in society today. You know, whether you want to call people words like zombies or sheeple, whatever it is, I think these are just people that have been disconnected from source, which in our case is a direct sensory experience of the natural world. So in grappling with these issues myself, being someone who's kind of a keyboard commando with, yeah, bring down the state, bring down the political elites of the, you know, I've found that showing people a relationship with nature has done so much more in helping people arrive at their own core values and their own perspective, which usually leads them to question centralized authority, or at least, like I said, not take it for gospel, much more effectively than all my keyboard commandoing. And for someone who is so much deeper into activism than myself, I wondered if you saw that thread as well. Uh, so it's powerful to hear that you did. It is. I mean, I, I wrote a piece when I came back to England from Thailand once called Foraging as an Act of Reverence. So the closest I've got, to, this is why people think I do spirituality, because um, right. it's quite fluffy. And it's one of the most read pieces. And I'm very, very clear in that essay, I suppose. It's a kind of poetic essay, I suppose. It was completely inspired, just written on the hoof verbatim mm. as it came out. And it's it's a reflection of my own past as a as a very violent and angry activist. Yeah. And the pain and suffering that that put into the world with people I knew and people I didn't know. And one of the things that people do need to be aware is that 
for me, anger is quite a brute force emotion. So down the streets, some weird person is coming towards you, you get a bad vibe off them. That's a, your survival mechanism kicking in, telling mm. you. And we get that all the time. That feeds into the concept of these data streams that are coming in all the time and the shutter of the camera. So the practice allows us to sense deeper. So when someone says, I'm angry, I always go, yeah, but what's that's your emotion. What's the feelings behind the anger, the subtler feelings that the culture doesn't want us to feel? Not that it doesn't want us to feel. It, it's just we ignore them. And so right. the journey, I do talk about activism in this, this piece on foraging as an act of reverence. And I talk about how if you're going to protest, you, and it sounds really gooey and new agey, <laughs> if you're going to protest, you do have to do it with love. Now, I'm, my, you know, my concept of love is not wet lick in the air, there, there, hello. It's quite a, a bit, I don't know, I don't know, it's a bit punky love. <laughs> and that means that I have to, When one of the things I've found is that, not to get rid of my anger, but to put a perspective on my anger and my rage and my fury, because I was raped when I was four years old by a woman. And I'm very transparent about all this. I'm transparent about the rape and the abuse, and I'm transparent about my addiction, and both feed into each other. Yeah. But I had to process that, and I had to get to a place of one acceptance that that is what happened, but two forgiveness. And those sound really cliched, and there's only one way you can do that, and that means you've got to go into it. Yeah. And through sinking down with plants and to feel the more we waken up our sensory body, our somatic body, we will touch into those spaces. And if you've had it like that, go on. Hopefully not as extreme as mine. And I know many people from the groups I've been a part of, the recovery groups, you know, who've had far worse experiences than I've had. Uh, but pain is pain. Pain is pain. And you've got to meet it. And the plants and, the, and nature is there. When I was basically ended up homeless, I lost everything because of my addiction. You know, the one thing where I could go for sanctuary was the woods, was into wildness and nature. That is a given. To me, that is a truth with a capital T. It's there. The healers there, the salves are there. And to reflect back on your point about activism, Laura Luddite, who wrote this wonderful kind of radical herbal book, booklet that you'll find online somewhere, said, I'm paraphrasing, there's nothing more uncomfortable to a government than a citizenship that knows how to feed and heal itself. They're a threat. Exactly. In a good way. In a good way. They're a chat, not a threat, a challenge. They're a challenge. You know, it's time old empire, colonial, imperialist structures you're going to have to face that. Maybe you're going to have to dissolve. Right. Well, the point you just made about nature as an ally to help you embody and drop into some of these emotions that are incredibly difficult to embody. You know, my wife always says that when we experience violent trauma and, and we've all had our own experiences of whatever that is, our instinct is to pop out of the body. Yeah. We don't want to sit with that. We don't want to be with that. So to actually what you're talking about, and it is cliche, but to actually 
do it <laughs> is the great work that is the challenge and is such an integral part of, of being human and growing and evolving. But to see that the natural world, you know, is this place where however you want to look at it, that it helps you process the energy, that it helps you, but it can help you get into a space where you can confront these things and it helps you kind of drop back into the body and be able to work through and process trauma. Again, this is a theme that's come up so many times that I didn't expect when I started doing these interviews is nature and a relationship with nature as a incredibly powerful ally in processing trauma. And maybe it has to do with, you know, the way that natural systems are so effective at recycling so many things that it can recycle, help us recycle that trauma within our own body and, and use it in some other way. And just a powerful elucidation of that. And I really appreciate you sharing your story because I think so many of us have gotten that same kind of healing and not that nature heals you per se, but nature is a potent vehicle or ally to help you heal yourself and do that own work is a really, really important concept. And I think you've also done a great job through this whole interview of talking about how an empowered and informed populace that has their own connection with nature, which is essentially their own connection with the divine. You know, that's always challenged centralized authority. And I've kind of since my early days of railing against the system, I've kind of seen this bigger spectrum where organized society and centralized authority has served certain needs, but it's always balanced on a scale versus individual liberty and our own connection to divinity. And so having a populace that is informed, that can have their own food supply, is sustainable, is kind of helping that balance not get too far in the direction of centralized authority. So I, I think it is such an important concept for us to wrestle with. And I know we've been talking about some really huge concepts here, but I would like to know from you what there in the UK aisles, you know, what kind of wild food, wild plant, forage tradition, what kind of history does that have there? Because I think we're talking about all this in the context of modern society reconnecting and you're traveling around to other cultures where this tradition seems more alive or more active than it is here. But what kind of tradition is there there in the UK? What kind of deep roots does this kind of relationship have with historic culture, maybe spiritual traditions, all, all those kind of things? Yeah, that's a, that's one that I kind of mulled on for, for quite a long time because we might be Britain, we may be this lovely ancient culture that has a lot of history. So where's our indigenous culture? Where's the indigenous knowledge? You could say it's still with the Druid communities. You could say it's still within the Celtic traditions. If you look at some of the Celtic Christianity, it was deeply, it was green spirituality. It was nature spirituality. They just kind of sat on top of some of the pagan stuff that was there. But they had deep connection. This wasn't an intellectual thing. Hence, people like Hildegarda Bingen, even though she was a Rhineland mystic. But actually, the closest to a living tradition, now I'm not saying the Druids and pagans are going to jump on my head when I say this, um, <laughs> but actually, for me, it's the Rom. So the Rom are gypsies. 
Roma, you may know them as. And yes. there has been a lot of work. So I, I bumped into, into Rom at crazy hedonistic parties back in the day. And they're, they're a unique community. They were not open to me exploring plants with them at all. And for very good reason. I mean, you know, Hitler gassed a load of them. Come on. You know, everyone talks about the Jews and Hitler and them being the victims. Well, bloody hell. Queer community. Traveller gypsy community were equally as annihilated. Right. And they've always permanently, the traveller communities in Britain have, I'm talking lineage traveller traditions, not what I would call modern travellers who kind of chose to leave the cities and set up, but actually people have a, have a generational lineage going down like a long time into the past. And there's an amazing ethnobotanist in Britain called Sarah Edwards. I would check her out because it is my understanding when I interviewed Mark Nesbitt, she has got Roma blood and she's been making headways into those communities to, I think, and Sarah, forgive me if I've totally got this wrong, to start documenting their ethnobotanical knowledge because it's dying out and it needs to be recorded for, well, why do we record stuff? So we don't forget. So we don't forget the cultures. We don't forget the people. We don't forget their stories. No, it, it's an expression of humanity and the plant-person relationship that that is being contained within their own culture for good reasons. I mean, they're shat on over here. The government's trying to bring in trespass, criminalizing trespass, which means traveler communities are, are going to be even more marginalized and sidelines than and spat on by idiots who have no understanding of the other, someone who's different to them, you know, get frightened by that. So Sarah Edwards, definitely check her out if you want to explore that more. Okay, so the ROM came initially. Um, there's a wonderful film, if you want to explore it, called Lacho Drom, directed by a Roma director with Roma Actors, most of them not actually actors, but just characters within it. Beautiful, beautiful three-hour film tracing the migration from Rajasthan right through Middle East, Eastern Europe, down into Spain where the flamenco comes and into Britain and elsewhere. Just fascinating. So that to me, if I had to put, say, oh, who are the people in Britain in the 21st century who have ancient lineage to right. plant knowledge? Roma gypsy communities and culture, definitely. I wish I could be a fly on the wall of Sarah's interviews. Well, I think you've just introduced, I know you've just introduced myself and I'm sure many of the listeners to the idea that gypsies of the Roma community are kind of bearers of a lot of plant knowledge from back in time. And intuitively, when you said it, of course, it makes all the sense in the world, but such a maligned group that's so oft overlooked that it's not something I would have thought of right away. So I really, really appreciate that perspective. And Get Sarah Edwards on your podcast, mate. I certainly wrote the name down. I pretty much wrote down everything you've been saying this entire interview, but I, I did highlight that name as a potential guest to have on the show because that does sound absolutely fascinating. And to continue that thread in your ethnobotanical research around the world. I'm careful not to call you an ethnobotanist because you did 
you were able to delineate what those terms mean for me before the show. You're an ethnobotanical researcher. What's another culture, and I know it's going to be impossible to pick, but another culture with a powerful tradition of wild food and how that affects the shape or the feel of their society. And maybe it's just one that was particularly impactful for you. And maybe you can just take us on a journey there. But another culture you've you've done research with and maybe how their wild food has been integral to that society. So you made the point that I delineate between ethnobotanist and ethnobotanical researcher. In my work, I also delineate between hunter-gatherer communities. Often when people talk about hunter-gatherers, they're talking tribes. Okay, I'm going to put the cat amongst the pigeon here. Completely uneducated, no academic qualification to his name, Robin, is going to say that a tribe is a mini-nation state. It's a top-down social structure, right? That's fine. That's fine. But we need to be very clear that static, generally static, tribal cultures that are still hunter-gatherers, right, are very different to nomadic, wandering hunter-gatherer cultures like the Gui. And it's been really hard for me to find nomadic, wandering hunter-gatherers because they've all been killed or they've all been integrated into the dominant culture of the particular country and land area that they're a part of. Right. If you want to pursue this more, there is an awesome anthropologist called James C. Scott who has written a book called Against the Grain. Now, there are two books out there called Against the Grain. This is James C. Scott's book. He's also written a few books on anarchism because he naturally came to it by his work in Southeast Asia with nomadic, wandering, hunter-gatherer communities. Of course. So I did finally be able to meet a nomadic, hunter-gathering community, and they're known as the Moken, M-O-K-E-N. They are no longer nomadic, but that's only been in the last few years. They have now been put into enclaves, as we know We know the story. They're being told they can't speak their own language. They're mm. being told they have to be part of the, the modern world. And this is where, oh, yeah, we all need rituals and celebrations. You know, we need rites of passage. This is a kind of default that gets banded around. Cat amongst the pigeons now, folks. The Moken have no initiation rights. Hmm. They don't gauge the progress. They don't see time as linear. In fact, they have no concept of time. Yeah, I'm still trying to process this after quite a few years because you can't unthink something you've already thought of, right? So if I think of time, I know what that means. But imagine no time. Bearing in mind that the Moken are ocean-faring nomadic culture, I mean, they were truly stateless, really. They just, this is why the Thai and Malaysian government couldn't stand them. They just didn't recognize what's a nation, national border. We've been on these oceans since your nation state was even thought of. <laughs> the polar opposite of the centralized nation totally. state. Yeah. But 
they would when the monsoon monsoons came and the seas became very very choppy they would go to land and they would use plants so i the usual thing if you go and see the mokan on some tour in thailand you get there you go for 20 minutes they land their museum pieces everyone's walking around in thongs and bikinis you know this is a culture that does not do that they're told not to do it but the bloody white privileged tourists think that they can just oh well you know our culture is so much more important sod them so they did it really disrespectful all that tourist culture but there was a group of people that worked with the Mokan. So when the that big tsunami came in and, and destroyed a load of um, Thailand and Asia, no one died in, Mokan, in the Mokan communities. Why? Because their stories, their stories, their ancient stories going back God knows how many years, thousands, told them how to spot the signs of a tsunami. So they moved. They went up inland and uphill. They then came down and helped do the rescue and because their base where they were was totally destroyed a group of people got together who'd worked with them anyway and went in and do take people in so i went with these people in to the mokan and i spent three days not a lot of time but long enough to sit intimately with them and speak to them and and through a mokan interpreter because their language is not written down their language is oral And when their voice dies, their stories die. Their way of knowing about earth changes dies with them. And Wade Davis, if you've ever seen Wade Davis talking about, you know, every language is so important and why we need to be preserving them. This is why we need to be preserving the Roma communities and cultures, because it's the human story collectively when combined. And they have a lot to teach us. So I documented their plants and purely from an amateur base. And you'll find the Moken article on my website, just M-O-K-E-N in the search box, it will pop up. And it threw up an awful lot of questions. Why is there this concept that somehow we need rites of passage? They don't get mm. with time. Oh, but there's ocean ferries. They must recognize the moon. Well, they kind of do, but it's not in how we perceive time. So, um, like I say, I still haven't been able to process that one, even now. They were extraordinary. And their way, of, their way of dealing with conflict. I was speaking to a friend the other day about, you know, oh, there's conflict going on in this group and everyone has to push through it. Remember the water. We'd like to go through the boulder. We don't want to flow around it. So, you know, right. in, in, in our therapeutic community, you've got to sit with that anger. You know, you've got an issue with someone. You've got to sit with it and work with it and go through it. Go, 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 go get them, folks. Go, go get in touch with your feelings. What the most can do, they just get up and walk away. If it's too intense for them, they get up and they walk away. They breathe, they do whatever they do. And when they kind of the, the feelings have subsided, they come back. If the feelings rise up again, they remove themselves. They don't sit there. You know, <laughs> try so, to break the boulder with their bare hands. Yeah. <laughs> so it's about, and there was such a gentleness to them. I mean, God, talk about my partner. She refers to sometimes when we're out and we're going a little bit too fast. Come on, we need to do moken time. And man, these people walk slow. Yeah, they walk really, <laughs> really slow. <laughs> Honestly, it blew my head and I'm still processing it. So, you know, my framework has had to adapt from meeting those people. That when we hear, oh, you've got to have rights of passage, my immediate question is, do we? Hmm. 
I know a people over there who thousands of years don't have those. Well, you know, we want to laud diversity so much in the modern world, but really what is our modern concept of diversity when we've subsumed so many other cultures and so many other ways of existing? I mean, as foreign as not having a concept of time, I mean, relating this to kind of a principle of permaculture, just healthy microbiomes, healthy ecosystems, there's this idea of outrageous diversity always making the whole system stronger. And you have to wonder that in this modern world where we are cognizant of this idea of diversity, how diverse truly are we? You know, how many different perspectives and viewpoints do we truly have? Because when we look around at societies today, they all have the same trappings, roughly the same organization, you know, even something, I guess, ideas that we need rituals and rites of passage. You know, we aren't necessarily getting a true, true diversity of perspectives. And that's why this fascinating window into your work, I knew you'd have an amazing example for us, just shows how in developing relationship with the natural world and then seeing how other societies do the same, you've gotten a, this incredible perspective that when I hear about it, makes me realize the limitations my own perspective and the limitations that our societies have in terms of our perspective on, you know, what we're doing in this world, what our purpose is, all of those questions. I'm sure the Mokin answer would be so wildly different to, to our answer. To me, it's, it. I'm still an inquisitive kid. I just, I'm inquisitive. And I remember being thrown out of a class or sent out of a class once because I asked too many questions and I haven't stopped. And I, as an anarchist, as someone who's got this slightly quirky framework of navigating life, if someone says something as an absolute, I challenge that. I might not challenge them, but internally I will, I will hold something gently. I won't dismiss it necessarily. But when new evidence, and this is where, you know, the priestly training, validate, 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 Right. discernment as well cut these these quite core spiritual philosophies that you'll find or principles that you'll find in other other spiritual traditions not just christians discernment and validation oh hold oh we all need rites of passage okay well i'm going to hold that do we okay well for the moment it seems to be self-evident and then you go and meet someone like the moken it's like well hang on that puts a different perspective on this rigidity of our belief systems I think that's why I don't, you know, someone asks me a question about plants, I'll, I'll do the old Buddhist thing and reflect it back and ask them the question. Like the number of people who are holding a leaf in their hand and they're going, I had this one, gosh, she was, she was a star. She was on my gig and she kept asking, what does it taste like? And I just went, what does it taste like to you? And having told <laughs> everyone, that, you know, you've got to nibble and do all this. But our habit mode, our habit way of working in the world, is, is even if we're aware of it, is still really hard. It's like all those marketing ploys, you know, it's like, you know that that time countdown timer is manipulating you and you know it's a load of crap, but you're still bloody by because the time, countdown timer is there. It's a kind of similar thing, you know, we're habituated humans. And I suppose if we talk spiritual practice, to me, spiritual practice, it's not about waking up and being all cosmic and enlightened, whatever the hell that means. To me, it's just about not being a sleepwalker. Gurdjieff in the Fourth Way School, he just defined humans as we're just deeply asleep. I mean, how can we not be deeply asleep with what we're doing to Gaia, the Earth? 
I mean, we yeah. think we're conscious and awake, la di da, and we are so self evidently not. <laughs> <laughs> so she was sitting there going, Oh, but what's it? Take? And she ended up just going, Oh, you're just going to tell me to eat it, aren't you? And I went, Well, yeah, I've kind of said it six times now. <laughs> Well, it seems like this idea of kind of breaking patterns or breaking programming, developing discernment somehow goes hand in hand with decentralization and true diversity of perspective. And I think these are all incredibly important concepts that we're going to have to start understanding if our society is going to move forward in any way that's healthy in terms of our balance with each other, with the other, with the natural world. And I think direct engagement and sensory perception of the natural world somehow unlocks all these different doors. You know, I I am not surprised at all that you're an anarchist because I think so many people, when they develop their own sensory intimate relationship with nature, somehow, like I said before, decentralization, honing discernment, all that seems to come with that or go hand in hand with those concepts. And I think you're really elucidating that beautifully. Well, just to hit on a couple items specific to your work and specific to wild plants, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. You obviously have some amazing books to your name, including Edible and Medicinal Wild Plants of Britain and Ireland. You know, if you could pick one or two, what are some of the most either important or maybe ubiquitous, but a couple food plants that you want to highlight for folks there in the UK to learn about if they just want to get into this information and developing this relationship that we have made into this life-affirming, culture-changing kind of relationship that we all need. Let's start with the pesto, right? Perfect place to begin. People often say to me, oh, where do I go with this? Where do I start? There's too much and, and there's too much danger out there. And it's like, well, what did you, which plants did you play with when you were a kid? Oh, I took dandelion clocks and blew them. It's like, oh, great. So you know dandelion, do you? Yeah, I know dandelion. Okay, great. Start with dandelion. Or, right. you know, daisy. Oh, I used to make daisy chains. Well, you know daisy, dear. Oh, well, okay. We'll start with daisy. And this is not a race to become all-knowing. I know 40,000 wild food plants around the world, or I know hundreds of this or hundreds of that. We had a discussion in Britain recently about who should be qualified to teach wild plants, you know, and it's like, you know what? Frank Cook, my old mentor, now deceased, type his name into my website, you'll find more about him, had this saying, you know, he was really community-based foraging teacher. He said, if you know one plant really well, start teaching it to your community. Teach it to your kids, to your grandkids, grab strangers off the high street and drag them into the hedge and show them dandelion. You don't need it. Hopefully I put over that, yeah, there's all these plants and they've got beautiful flavors and they've got amazing medicine, but it's the journey. It's the journey of meeting the plant. And that's the same practices for all of them. Yeah. So start with dandelion, become really intimate with dandelion. If all you've done is blown the clocks off when you're a kid well, what's it like smelling the flower and nibbling the flower? What happens is my wonderfully beautiful ethnobotanical friend, Mark Williams from botanyeveryday.com in America, he refers to it as botanical bling. So you've got that salad bag from, from the supermarket. Put 
dandelion flowers petals over it. Wow, how cool is that botanical bling? I really like that that phrase. What's the leaf that. like? What's the root like? Just start exploring. Like I said at the very beginning, like a lover, every nook and cranny and fluid and smell and taste and become so intimate with dandelion. If you know dandelion and you know daisy and you know stinging nettle from your childhood, it's not going to take much practice for you to start expanding your field of knowledge that incorporates other plants. But start with what you know and start today. Don't just listen to this podcast. Don't just read the bloody books. Don't just watch the YouTube videos or me spouting whatever I'm spouting. The journey comes by doing. Action trumps theory every single time. You cannot Mm. teach yourself more powerfully and deeply than being an autodidact, which means you go out on your own and learn it. Great if you've got a plant teacher, but if you haven't, dandelion, nettle, daisy. Honest, stinging nettle is like the superfood, one of the superfood plants. I don't normally like talking about plants like that, but let's just say from a nutritional point of view, it's pretty freaking pokey. But from a medicine point of view, it's pretty freaking pokey. Yeah. Again, we could talk about this for hours because it feeds into how do we serve wild food compared to how do we serve farm food? And this comes in mm. from the stories. So little dishes. If you look at my website, you'll see most of the modern recipe, the current recipes are all little dishes. There's a reason. Every culture, in tribal culture, traditional culture I've met in Southeast Asia, um, which is where I spend a lot of time, does little dishes. Main protein, main carb, lots of little dishes, like tapas. That's the way I explain it, like tapas. Look at the Middle East, mezes, mezes, little dishes. Look at India, talis, little dishes. Think little dishes with wild food. It's very, very simple. You don't have to go and slave. It's not about being master chef. It's not about being Michelin star. The culture wants, you know, kind of, unless you can spend four hours braising dandelion stalks with bloody saffron and whatever else. It's not about that. This is food for all of us. And if you've eaten, if you've eaten at any point in the, the time you've been on planet Earth, you know how to use plants as food. And it will come with your senses by using your sense of smell and a little nibble. Oh, that reminds me of this. Oh, that could go with peas. Or that could go with cloves. Just, you know what? And so you screw up sometimes and it looks bloody awful when you serve it up. But who cares? No one's looking. It's not for friggin' Instagram. It's for you and your family and your communities. And if it starts with just dandelion or daisy or stinging nettle, so be it. Yes, and I think that's so powerful to tell people to just go out and develop that relationship themselves, which again, in our society that's so intellectually based in the head, a lot of people I know feel like they have to research it to the nth degree before they can really start even touching the plant. Or in my case, when you talk about mushrooms, very much so, people think that you can't even touch a mushroom until you've read everything about it. And you know, there's so much to be said for experiencing it yourself. And just reminded of a naturalist here in California where I live, Christian Schwarz, amazing mushroom hunter, citizen naturalist, um, done a lot of great work. He tells the story of how when he first started developing a relationship with nature, plants and mushrooms, he was not reading books. And he thinks that helped him a lot, was to develop his own library of what things 
felt like and what things smelled like and really understand that for yourself through direct experience before you start reading what is essentially someone else's experience or what someone else has dubbed with a tag or with a label. It's very, very useful sometimes to have your own experience first as kind of a baseline. And then it kind of enriches later on when you read things. So I think that's fantastic advice. And I also think you're hinting at don't be scared to share this information or share your love of wild edible plants, even if you're only knowledgeable about one or two. Share those one or two. You don't have to be an expert who knows as much as some other, you know, quote unquote expert to begin sharing this in your community in a way that's going to help people and impact people in a positive way. Yeah, it's about not being a bloody expert, folks. It really is. It's it, As you just said, Darren, it is about knowing you know that one plant that's fine the caveat to that is don't get cocky don't try and teach outside your comfort zone yeah because there's so much ego in our culture and and so you just know one plant what the hell i couldn't care less you're a plant teacher if you know one plant and you can teach people it really deeply you're a plant teacher start there and with they you know you've just said there and the classic example of the old buddhist thing of beginner's mind where you enter into the space without any preconception and knowledge bank you're getting direct experience and that is absolutely on the same page as what you just said you know robin i'm sure a lot of people like myself have gotten so much out of this conversation and hearing from you You where can people connect with you and follow your work and maybe tell us about the the eat weeds community you've been building what that is okay so I've got a website called eatweeds.co.uk. I'm a complete essentialist, meaning I like minimalism. I mean, I like it in my life. I like it in my head. I like it in all aspects. So the site is very clean. Looks very simple, but dig deep down into the links and the categories, and hopefully you'll learn something. I write predominantly from a European perspective. I do include other cultures' uses of plants with the plant profiles. That really is where I hang my hat. You know, most of my my knowledge gets put up there. I do have a Facebook page. And when I do remember to to post a new article, I'll post it up there. But I don't hang out on Facebook organic. I have a private EatWeeds learning community Facebook group, but that is for customers. You know, I've spent thousands of hours and given thousands of hours of my time putting content out there for free. And it's really just for people who've honored who've honoured me, actually, and that is what it is, and supported my work. And sometimes they've just paid, paid, you know, a couple of pounds or a couple of dollars for, for one of my plant reports on, a, on, on the historical uses of past and present uses of plants, and they get in. So it's a really great community. It's very safe. I don't do bullies. Yeah, they're not allowed in. They start playing those kinds of games. They get one warning, shot across the bow, and then they're bounced out, and they can go and bleat and whine to the rest of the Facebook community as much as they like. So am I a fascist? Yeah, of course. <laughs> no. It comes to your own community. Like yeah. thugs. <laughs> and there's a lot of people, particularly blokes, actually. And I have to say that the majority of people in my community is about 80% women, if I look at my Facebook Insight tags. And it's very sharing. People are posting. People are asking. Lots of very knowledgeable people. I have an Instagram account. But it's really just personal. It's not for business. You know, I used right. to be a big bit. I used to be a big marketer. I have a background in digital marketing, 
right? And I'm bored with it. I'm bored with battering people over the head. Either you like what I do or you don't. And if you do, you can drop your name into my email, into my newsletter, which is at the bottom of each blooming page. But I'm not going to hammer you. I have no interest in playing silly buggers like that anymore. That's an old past, Robin. You know, we've all been there. Any of us who've been in, I'm sure you have, Darren. (laughs) Digital marketing background, you said it. It's time for a change. You know, it's about treating people with respect. It's about sharing as open-heartedly as we can. And when people try and cross the boundary and just take the piss out of us, it's also about putting the shield up and going, enough, you're not coming in. Yeah, I'm all into tolerance and everything, but I want to create safe spaces for people to learn about plants. And hopefully that's what I do and achieve in my site. My Instagram is just purely fun. It's my personal site. It's all black and white photos. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing. I'm not trying to showcase how cool I am. It's just me getting wowed by the beauty of the architecture of nature. Because, wow, you take one of those botanical eyeglasses called a loop and you go into the infinity within a flower. It's like taking acid without taking acid. You just, your mind (laughs) is blown by the beauty, the mystery, and the awe of what's right in front of your nose. And I think anyone who engages with your work, I mean, it becomes so apparent that for you, it's really about the natural world and, you know, as much as possible, especially impressive for someone who comes from a marketing background, that it's not all about Robin. You know, he's not trying to be your source. He's trying to be a conduit through which you can explore these things. And I definitely encourage everyone to check out your work, check out your books. I just mentioned one about the medicinal and edible plants. There's also a book that I was intrigued by about just about oak trees. Uh, There's plenty of content there for people to engage with. And then I believe you also have a podcast as well. Yeah, I do. Um, I have the Eat Weeds podcast. I'm not as disciplined as you, Darren. It comes out, (laughs) people kind of drop in, you know, they kind of end up on my radar and I go, Oh, you're curious. And actually, the less well-known they are, the better. I mean, it's right. great to get the greats, you know, the big names out there on on it. But I like the commonplace. I like the ordinary. I have this principle of the wisdom of the gutter. You're going to find more wisdom on the, on the street and in the gutter than you will at the top of a mountain. You know? And that came from my being homeless. Yeah, I met some extraordinarily wise people who were really broken humans at one level, but deeply insightful at another. And I like the ordinary i like the quiet one you know if i go into a party and there's someone just quietly hanging back there maybe they're a bit more introverted i'm gonna go and pick their brains because i think they've got something to tell me that everyone else is ignoring because they like the showman and the stars and the fireworks i like the quiet i seek out the quiet in nature you know yeah lions are great but what's that little insect over there doing yeah (laughs) the unassuming have deep wisdom. I couldn't agree more. I think everyone has a book within them, you know, some fascinating story to tell. And I've often gotten the feedback from people who listen to my show that it's not, you know, the big name person that I would have thought of. You know, people get so much out of hearing the stories of people who aren't as well known because it's a new story. And often there's something about it that's more approachable where we can find ourselves in it. And that kind of leads to a deeper connection. And more of an impact. So I definitely relate. And I encourage everyone, like I said, to go to eatweeds.co.uk, read the information, listen to the podcast, because clearly this is someone who's done a lot of work, both with plants, but also with anthropology, sociology, and work on themselves. So a lot of insights to offer. And 
you know, Robin, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to be on the Mushroom Hour, really sharing a lot of your personal story, being so open, and I think elucidating topics that a lot of us wrestle with in beautiful ways. And I think you've encouraged us all to ask a lot more questions, if nothing else, because my wife always says, a life of questing is a life of asking questions. I think you've you've made that very clear that you know a lot of times it's about asking more and more questions to really figure out what your truth is. So Robin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Darren. It, I've really enjoyed this one. You asked some really good questions and yeah, I know I can really go off on a, on a journey, but fabulous. Thank you. 